Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. After the mass shooting at a high school in Parkland, Florida, left 17 people dead last year, President Donald Trump linked the prevalence of gun violence in our nation to mental illness. That sentiment came up again after recent shootings in Dayton, Ohio, and El Paso, Texas. Yet the facts don't bear that out, says Dr. Jessica Gold. In fact, she writes in a recent essay in Time magazine, there is no factual link between mental illness and violence against others. Instead, she writes, people with mental health disorders are more likely likely to be victims of a violent crime than the perpetrators. Joining me in studio to talk about her essay and this troubling misconception is Dr. Jessica Gold. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University in St. Louis. Jesse, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. What do you see as the root of the spate of mass shootings in America? Do you have questions for Dr. Jessica Gold? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Jesse, let's just start right at the beginning. What spurred you to write this essay? I'm very active on social media, primarily Twitter, and I was seeing a lot of the doctor Twitter talking about this link and getting very frustrated and wanting people who actually worked with the mentally ill population to be talking about it. There are less psychiatry voices on social media, so I felt very compelled to be the person talking. Um, And so I basically wrote this op-ed with a friend of mine, Megan Rainey, who works at Brown University doing Basically, gun violence research runs a program called Affirm Research, which is aiming to help with the fact that we can't do research against gun violence because of the CDC. There's a thing called the Dickey Amendment that was passed that basically said that we at the government level can't research the reasons for gun violence. And so she started this thing called Affirm Research, which is a nonprofit that aims to bring basically the medical voices together and fund that research. And so she knows to a lot. To find alternative sources of funding. Absolutely. Okay. Alternative sources of funding to bring like medical communities together. So like medical organizations together to have that conversation. And so I'd been seeing a lot of what she'd been writing and saying. And we actually just kind of joined forces with our knowledge together where she really knows the gun violence research and I really know what being a provider for mental health looks like and combined it together. And together it ended up being a really powerful essay. Now, as somebody who's not an expert in this, we can all point to anecdotal cases where people with mental illness have committed a mass shooting. For example, Jared Loftner, who shot Congressman Gabrielle Giffords in Arizona, James Holmes, who opened fire at a movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. But your essay is saying this is a false assumption that there's a link between violence and mental illness. What research supports that? Right. So, I mean, when you look at those numbers and you see the people that they're talking about, it's also in the news and that's what we're discussing. So absolutely, those are the cases they're picking out. And they when get the you, most attention. They get the most attention. And then that draws this link in your mind between violence and mental illness, which makes sense if you think about it. Um, but if you look at all violence against people, like not just shootings, only three to five percent of that is committed by someone who has a mental illness. And what percentage of the population do we think has mental illness? So about a quarter of people have some version of mental illness. The studies are not 
great in this like nitty gritty difference between who they're talking about with violence. So a lot of them are studying people who probably have schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, um, things that we might define as serious mental illness um, and not so much that whole population. So it's a little bit harder to know exactly how that equates. But if you think about it, it's a small proportion of the population, an even smaller proportion of these big violent events. And then if you want to think about, you can't say that there's no, that people who are me- with mental illness are not more violent. It's just not true to say it completely. But if you look at the data and do these like analyses to the nitty gritty stuff of that again, um, addiction tends to be a big component. So if substance use is involved, actually negates any difference between um, somebody who doesn't have mental illness and somebody who does and violence. So substance abuse is a much bigger factor in terms of who does violent things. Much bigger factor. Substance use, we also see impulsivity as something and like this kind of vague measure of hostility. But impulsivity and hostility aren't mental illnesses. So that doesn't necessarily mean anything in terms of linking violence to mental illness, if that makes sense. It does. Um, but looking at a case, let's go back to Jared Loeffner or yeah. James Holmes, some of these really high-profile cases. Um, you know, you get somebody coming to a grocery store and ends up killing a federal judge and, um, you know, takes down a bunch of innocent people while he's at it. Another man terrorizing a movie theater. Aren't these cases, even if they don't fit in with the statistics, aren't they a big enough deal that we need to do whatever we can to stop them? Right. I mean, if you if you look at that again, it's guns. So I think what we're missing in this conversation is there are people with mental illness all over the world, and we have equal proportions, if not less, in some some capacities. But we have guns and a lot of access to guns. And if you look at the data, the gun ownership is part of the problem. Um, you know, access to guns when you're impulsive is a reason to be then violent. So if you're a person at home and you, for some reason, are triggered and then you decide to then go shoot someone, it I don't necessarily personally understand that mindset, but that impulsive situation is made much worse if you have access to a weapon. And then I can see your face when I said that, which is like, you know, it doesn't make sense, right? Mm-hmm. And we often search for reasons why things don't make sense. And it's much easier to say it doesn't make sense because somebody has a disease and we can pinpoint that it's a disease that's causing something, but actually they're just bad people. Like there are bad people in the world that do things that we don't like and we don't understand and we might never do ourselves. And an explanation of them being hateful or impulsive or hostile is just not that satisfying. And I think it's much easier to say, well, it's mental illness. We want to turn to this diagnosis because it gives us some peace of mind, maybe. Right. That they're different than us. You mentioned um, earlier a measure of hostility. Is there a specific indicator or way to measure that? The the study that I was referring to did use like a kind of general scale to measure it. But in like a clinical situation, not really. We're not that great at violence prediction as a group or in general. Part of that is, again, research and we need more research into it. But who's going to be hostile is really hard to predict. As a psychiatrist, most of what we're looking at is are they a danger right this minute when you're talking to them? And that's the conversation we often have, which is, are they dangerous enough to be put in a psychiatric hospital or to be involuntarily put in a psychiatric hospital? And that's like urgent need happening right now, not can I predict if that will happen in 10 years. You mentioned that firearms access is such a huge problem. 
Do you think we should restrict access to firearms for people who are suffering from mental illness? Right. So this is a hard question because I definitely agree with the idea of restricting weapons to people who are actively a risk to themselves or other people. I think that the problem with the statement is it often gets conflated and it's the only thing we talk about. So if we're talking about gun control, or I know people don't like that word and I might have just triggered half your audience by saying that. But it's become very politically <laughs> incorrect to call right. it that. But um, with with when we're talking about that, we're talking about a lot of common sense measures, right? We're about background checks. We're talking about expanding that definition of who could be violent to domestic violence, right? And so if we're only talking about like these so-called red flag laws, which is could you take away weapons from somebody who is an imminent risk to themselves or someone else often by reason of mental illness, um, it's just very stigmatizing to be the only thing we're saying. I'm fine saying it and I don't disagree with it. And most like gun groups are the groups that are speaking out against this and really trying to make change would say the same thing. And they agree that it should be in that list of things that we're working on, but maybe not just the only thing and the only sole focus of everything we're talking about. That makes sense. You're saying you'd be happy to have guns taken away from mentally ill people, but you'd also like to have a lot of other things changing here, including more guns being taken away from more people. Right. I mean, I think if you think about it, like, again, with impulsivity, if you have access in the moment, suicide's an impulsive act. It's Suicide Prevention Month, so I'd be remiss to not mention that. And if you take access away from guns and suicide, not only are the methods going to be way less lethal because gun violence or using a gun in a suicide is way more lethal than any method you could possibly choose, um, you're also not likely to do it because you don't have access. So it, it, these like red flag laws that have been passed have been shown to decrease suicide rates in places. And I think that it makes sense, right? If you're in the moment and you're feeling really sad or something is not right and like you have access to a weapon and you can turn to it. It seems like it would be a very good thing to take that away. Right. I mean, I, it would be wrong of me to disagree with that, I think. <laughs> we got a tweet. Um, Hillary in St. Louis tweets, other countries have had mental illness, violent video games, etc. What do you suppose the difference might be, I think she's saying, between us and them? And she adds in parentheses, we know the answer. I think she's agreeing with you that the problem here is how many guns we have. It's guns. Yeah. I mean, it's access to guns. It's access to high magazine weapons, you know. I mean, I think when people want to go hunt they don't want to hunt 40 people in a minute. Um, that's very different. Yeah. Um, the president himself, as we alluded to earlier, has waded into this issue. He said at a rally years ago, many cities and states, I remember so well, closed mental institutions for budgetary reasons. They let those people out onto the street. We don't have those institutions anymore and people can't get proper care. Say what you will about Trump, but we do have a big problem with mental, mentally ill people not being able to get the care that they need. Do you think reopening mental institutions is a solution? Ooh, that's a hard one. So that statement and all of the statements I feel like are intended to divert my attention from talking about guns. So I will first of all say that it's still the guns. Um, but second of all, I will say as a psychiatric provider, there are tons of things wrong with our mental health system. What was wrong when we deinstitutionalized is we did not build up community care at the same time. And talk to me briefly, deinstitutionalization. Right. That happened when? In like around the 70s. It was it was Kennedy. Okay. And um, we started saying we're not going to have these insane asylums anymore. Right. I mean, they had very poor conditions and it was 
the reasons that people were put in them were not necessarily for psychiatric reasons. Sometimes there are a lot of rumors like people didn't like their wife. They had a doctor and themselves sign off on it and they went there. I wasn't alive. I can't exactly comment on that. Sure. However. But these were not golden institutions. They were not golden institutions. The care was really poor. They often were not even like really taken care of physically. Um, there was a really good reason for them to be discontinued and 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 but the problem was there were a lot of people in them and we didn't really compensate with that by then building up community care or having a place for people like that dead just get discharged to turn to and so what did end up happening was people end up in homeless is one thing people end up in prison which is now our major psychiatric provider in this country and surely not a better solution than surely what not we've a had. better solution and we didn't build up inpatient beds either right so we use inpatient psychiatric again for these like acute somebody is going to hurt themselves or someone else today or they're gravely disabled by psychiatric reasons which means they can't provide for food clothing and shelter um, and so we don't have more beds if you could see if you came here and you went to our, our hospital at Barnes you would say there are lots of people waiting in the ER to get placed somewhere for psychiatric care that need it but we don't have a lot of beds and we don't have somewhere to put them so he's not wrong to say that there is a problem I don't like words like those people um, I can tell you that for sure and I don't like the focus just being on mental illness that's my primary complaint with almost all of this conversation is if you just say mental illness mental illness mental illness and then gun violence all you're gonna say is oh mentally ill people are violent um, how have you seen the stigma that you see coming out of this kind of language how does that affect people like your patients poorly I mean I think mental illness in general is stigmatized. So without this idea of violence and without it being in the newspapers and without this focus being on are they going to commit a crime or what is wrong with them, um, there is a lot of stigma against mentally ill people. That means that they don't come get care. That means they don't get care until it's very late. We're not focusing on prevention. Like someone's not at home going, I'm not sleeping, I'm not eating, I need help now. They're waiting until they're suicidal to get help or until the voices make it so they can't function. And that's really late. And a lot of that, in my opinion, has to do with stigma. I think they're, even if they don't have stigma themselves, this like societal stigma, or that might rub off on their family members or their friends or the school that they go to, the TV that they're watching, all of that can then kind of influence their own mind and they can end up having sort of like a hatred for themselves or like a not wanting to disclose what's going on with them to other people because of fear of what that means. We're talking today to Dr. Jessica Gold. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University in St. Louis. What do you see as the best step to curbing mass shootings in America? Give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. We have been getting some phone calls, um, and we've actually got one here. I'd like to go to the phone lines. Um, Natasia is calling from Edwardsville, Illinois. Uh, Natasia, hi. You're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi, uh, yeah, it's Natasha. Um, oh, hi, Natasha. I'm, Sorry about that. Hi. No, you're good. Um, I'm calling. Um, so um, in December of this past year, I lost four family members in a mass shooting that occurred in uh, St. Charles County. Oh, I'm so and, sorry. Uh, yeah, my uh, my niece, my nephew, my sister-in-law and her mother were all um, shot by her boyfriend. And, um, you know, really, I, I think that these red flag laws, um, that they shouldn't just be localized, but they really need to be at a national level because, um, you know, if 
you know, if somebody's in one jurisdiction, they can easily go to another. You know, I, I think we see it all the time with um, Chicago gun laws is, you know, people just cross the state line and they go to a different county or they go to a different state. And really, if we're not doing something at the federal level, that I just don't think that it's going to be very effective. Um, you know, the shooter in this case, you know, that he, he potentially could have been thwarted by a red flag law. He had, you know, shown some previous signs of some anger um, management issues, and he was somebody who definitely um, carried a gun on him at all times. And um, what should have been an argument ended up in for people tragically losing their lives. Wow. Um, Jesse, that sounds kind of like some of these warning signs you're talking about here. And, and now this family has been left devastated by this. Do you think the issue of, of red flag laws that go across state lines, would that be a helpful thing we could tackle as a society? First of all, thank you for sharing that story. It's definitely not easy to talk about something like that, let alone in a public forum. But it's really appreciated. And I'm sure people listening really value you adding that to the conversation. So thank you for that. Um, I do think that one of the problems that you will see with red flag laws is it will be dependent on states, which means that the state can also define who gets to get their guns taken away and like how long that's for and how do you get them back. And in a state that might be a little bit more pro on the gun side. Like say Missouri. Like say Missouri. um, It might be harder to then take away weapons from certain people. I mean, and she was talking what sounded like a domestic partner kind of situation. And a lot of these cases involve that. Um, Oftentimes, the definition for red flag laws is like a husband and not a boyfriend or a partner. And that's a problem. So you could, I could go and say, only you can take away guns from someone I'm married to, but not someone I'm dating. Oh, no. Yeah. That's a problem. That's a problem. It sounds like it would have been a problem um, in the case of Natasha's family. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's one of the things we have to consider. It's definitely harder to get stuff done at the federal level, for sure, um, especially when this feels like one of those like really prominent states' rights conversations. But I don't disagree with you that a lot of this stuff should be done at a higher level to get things done and get things done effectively. Natasha, I want to thank you for your call. And again, I think uh, Jesse and I here are just both really feeling such sadness for your loss. I'm, I'm sorry that, that this has happened to your family. Yeah, thank you. I, I just had one more comment. It's, sure. You know, I just feel like as a society right now, just concealed carry and people continually carrying guns on them that, you know, I just think it's really hard to come to a peaceful resolution when people disagree when a gun is always within our reach. And, and I really think it is a, it's not just something that we can legislate, but it is a societal problem. Thank you so much for that, Natasha. I think you make another really good point. We appreciate your call today. Um, We've actually got another caller on the line. Um, I'd like to go to David. Um, David from Webster Groves. Hi, you're on St. Louis on the Air. Hi, thank you. Um, So, yeah, when we have these, especially the spectacular attacks of one variety or another, um, there's a great Hidden Brain episode on NPR by Shankar Vedantam about this exact topic, how when the shooter is from our group, and I'm going to say that as a middle-class white person in the Midwest, that one individual must be broken. So mental illness is obviously the result. When the shooter or, you know, the big spectacular attack is not a white individual, then that whole group of people are craven criminals or religious fanatics. So when the shooter is like us, we do everything we can to make sure that that one individual is broken. And when the shooter is not like us, it's easy to blame the entire group. Um, So if this really was a mental health issue, 
you know, are we ready to call an entire population of non-white people mentally ill? But that, that's kind of the narr- how the narrative plays out, and the, you know, the one versus many over and over and over again. David, thank you for that. that that's super interesting. Um, Jesse Gold, any thoughts to that? Yeah. I, first of all, I need to listen to that podcast, so thanks for the recommendation. I hadn't heard a lot of that data, so that's also really interesting. It's kind of the stuff that we talk about, but we don't have data to point at, and it's really interesting to kind of hear the concepts behind it. I think that there has been conversation about who do we track that has mental illness, and that's been kind of brought up more lately, which only further makes me angry because, again, it's diverting from guns. But if it's impossible that only white males have mental illness. So if we're going to say that the cause of mass shootings, which are predominantly white males, predominantly in the like 20s to 30s range, what about the rest of the mentally ill people in this country? There's just no way that only white men have mental illness. You make a really good point there. Um, I want to go back to your essay for a minute. There was a phrase in there that I thought was really interesting that you discussed a little bit as as you were sort of setting up um, your argument. Tell us about the illusory, I'm sure I've mispronounced that, truth effect. I think you said that right. Wow. (laughs) I would be surprised if there's another way to say it. But I, I learned this from a friend who does a lot of writing. And one of the things she pointed out was that in misinformation, health misinformation, any sort of misinformation, when we repeat things over and over, we begin to begin believe that they're true. So if like I'm watching the TV and every time I turn on the TV, it says like, well, mental illness is linked to gun violence, mental illness is linked to gun violence, then if it ever like comes up again and there's a shooting, my first thought is, I bet you it's mental illness. Because I kind of go in my history, in my brain, and my history of violence is, well, it must be mental illness because they told me. And there's this belief that if somebody repeats things a lot of times, it can't possibly not be true. And I don't, obviously, the way that talking points work in politics, it makes sense that this is kind of how they function. Um, But we do know that, like, a lot of what people are saying are not truths. A lot of things in medicine are almost entirely misinformation. That's why I like to do this and come on and talk about this stuff is because people don't, why would you go and read a medical literature about this stuff? You don't have time for that. We're not going to be doing that. We need you to to tell us what's up. You read the headline. You read the tweet. You read the soundbite. All of that is not helping this. It's just kind of perpetuating it. We've got time for just one more question here today. And we've been talking a lot about um, these mass shootings that have been in the news so much. And I guess the question is, even going beyond blaming the wrong people for them, the fact that they have been in the news so much, how does that affect the mental health of those of us who are just watching this conversation wide-eyed? I mean, this can't be good for us to be obsessively following this. It can't be, but we don't know that it isn't, which is, again, the problem of this Dickey Amendment research kind of thing. We also have never had a period of time where we had this many mass shootings, so Mm. it's not something we can say, like, oh, I bet that this will happen if that happens. Um, There's some like evidence about watching more like violent things on TV like violent shows or watching like the news from 9-11, things like that and people getting PTSD sort of from watching. Um, But we don't know what it looks like if you watch it a lot of times. Like do we become immune to it somehow? Is it like flooding your emotions and you sort of are numb or do you end up having mental illness after effects? We also don't know like what is it like for a family member or a survivor of the shooting and what's their mental illness look like down the road? There were two suicides like um, one of the Parkland kids that was in the shooting and but wasn't injured but was there and and later killed himself later killed himself and then 
there was a, another suicide of one of the Newtown parents. And I think, like, we just don't understand that either. But it makes sense that you would have some kind of survivor guilt, but it's stuff we should be talking about. And I and I think when I read social media, people are like, I'm anxious to go to the grocery store. I'm anxious to go to a movie theater. I'm anxious to, like, do anything. And that's probably not false anxiety. I mean, it's random. All this stuff feels random. You don't really know when it's going to happen or where. It happens in lots of venues in lots of states. So I think it makes sense. We just need to learn more to be able to answer that question. So that might be a topic for some future research. Totally. Well, that's just Dr. Jessica Gold. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry at Washington University in St. Louis. You can read her op-ed online at time.com. Um, Jesse, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. And I want to say to our callers, I know we didn't get to everybody, but I appreciate you guys calling in, and, and hopefully maybe we'll get you next time. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.